much. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Tyler. I'm the pastor of Outfitter Church, and I'm honored that you chose to spend your evening um, either exploring Jesus or exalting Jesus with us. And so thank you for being here. I want to start by telling you a story. Am I still a little hot? A little loud? Bump down just a little bit to that little triangle. Um, I'll tell you a story. When I was in high school, I, was, I, I, I grew up and I was very, 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 very fortunate to have a phenomenal home church uh, in my early years of being a Christian. One of the cool things about that is we were able to go on these really cool out of the country mission trips. So we went to Honduras. I think I was a junior in high school and I go to Honduras. We were gonna go help this Honduran missionary uh, with uh, some kids ministry stuff and things of that sort. And so we, we fly to Honduras and, and one of these things that's really cool about mission trips is you bond really well with people. Now, if you've never been on a mission trip, I, Outfitter Church is planning on doing one in the future. Uh, maybe you'd be able to go on that and see what I mean. But when you've flown to a different country and you really can't speak the language of those people, uh, and you're just serving God together, you really do bond with your team and with those whom you're there to serve. And so I'm, I'm bonding, and I'm a pretty open book, so I, I'd probably tell someone, I, you know, hey, I love you, bro. I'd probably say that a little too soon. But about midweek, I start saying, te amo, hermano, to uh, some of these guys, which means I love you, brother. And, and so this is, I say this to the teenage guys that we're working with, and every time I say that, te amo, hermano, they just kind of look at me. And I was like, man, these guys are jerks. Like, I thought we were buddies by now. So I'd leave Damo and then I'm, I'm out. <clears throat> Came back the next day thinking, surely they're going to love the gringo on the trip. And every time they just kept saying these weird things. It wasn't until the very end of the trip that I can't remember if I asked the missionary or what, like why his church was so rude. But it was, I was then informed that men don't say I love you to other men in that culture. Now we were in Guatemala the year before and everyone said it back to me. So I didn't realize that in like two, they're both in Central America. I thought, surely I can say love you bro to one of them and not be considered incredibly weird. So I was very humiliated and embarrassed that I went the whole week like really making these young teenage guys embarrassed and like awkward that the weird missionary guy keeps telling me loves them. And it was just really, really a weird moment for me. and. Um, one of our core values, uh, see if I get it right. No, I get it wrong every week. One of our core values is Bible fluency. We have them over there, right? So the second one, Bible fluency. <clears throat> Miriam Webster defines fluent as being able to accurately or with ease and with grace to navigate a situation. So that's kind of general to be fluent in something is with ease and with accuracy or with ease and with grace. And then the other one, it says to accurately and easily navigate a language. So I knew how to say te amo, which means I love you in Spanish. I knew that, but I didn't know how to accurately apply it in that culture. And so that left me in a very awkward moment, making many people feel uncomfortable and, and so it is with the Bible, is, is that the Bible is the playbook to our life, if you will. The Bible is God's word that if we as Christians are light in the darkness, <clears throat> then the Bible is the, the pathway to living a righteous life with God, the pathway to living the life God wants for you. And so if we're not fluent in the scriptures, we're going to make people feel very awkward with the way that we handle or live out the Bible or the lack of doing those things. And so today, I wanted to tell that story to illustrate that when we're not fluent in a situation, it leads to awkwardness and to confusion. And so it is with how we handle the Bible and the life of the Christian. And so if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy Chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, small book at the very back, right after 1 Timothy. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Now, 
Um, this, the scriptures are going to be on the screens. We also, if you forgot your Bible or your phone's dead, there's Bibles on the insides of your rows. Um, if you do not own a Bible and you would like one, that is our gift to you. We want you to know that everything that we teach and believe and base our life off comes upon the sturdy foundation of God's Word. So we want you to read along while we're preaching because if it's not in God's Word, don't listen to it. Uh, so again, if you, if you don't have a Bible and you would like to have one, that is our gift to you. <clears throat> so 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 through 17. Read with me. <clears throat> Excuse me. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's very short. I'm going to read it again. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right out of the bat, we see that this passage is making a very strong claim that the Bible is inspired by God. The first thing we see right out of the gates is the Bible is inspired by God. Now first, if you didn't know this, you you probably already knew this, but the the New Testament was originally written in Greek, the language of Greek. Now do you know what the word word all means in Greek? All. Same thing in English, right? So no matter what language you want to look at, all means all. So Paul, or yeah, Paul starts out this, this letter and he says, all scripture. Now, let me just make an admission here. When Paul wrote this, he was not talking about the New Testament. You want to know why? Because he was writing it as he wrote the letter. The New Testament hadn't come into being yet, so he couldn't be talking about that. But I'll get back to it, okay? So he says, all scripture, and and the word scripture means passage or portion. So he says, all passages and portions of the Old Testament, he's, that's the only book of the law that they had at that point was the Old Testament. Um, and so he says, all portions and passage, passages of the Old Testament is inspired by God. And so we need to tackle two things right out of the gate. And the first one is that if the Bible is inspired by God, or what, is, what does Paul mean by scripture? If Paul was talking about the Old Testament, Can we trust the New Testament? Okay, so there's one thing that we need to tackle. And the second thing is, what does inspired by God mean? Let's first talk about inspired, then we'll get to the scripture. What inspired by God does not mean is that any of the biblical authors were just kind of sitting around, hanging out, you know, in Jerusalem, and then like out of nowhere, something just comes into them, and they're like, must have a pen, and they grab a pen, and they just start scribbling down dictated words from God. I don't believe that that is what inspired by God means, because as you look throughout the beautiful book that we call the Bible, you see the the personalities of the biblical authors coming through the pages. God's not just overriding everything he created them to be. He's more so, he's using them and their passions and their uniqueness and their personalities. And he's weaving that into his inspiration for his word to his people. So inspiration does not mean that, that they'd like, if you've ever seen the movie Flubber, I don't know, that's an old movie. Google it, it's hilarious. But this green goo would like come into people and it made them much better at everything they did. And so that's, that's not what happens when the biblical authors were inspired to write God's word. That word means to be influenced by, and, and Peter, a biblical author inspired by God to write uh, the word of God, Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, or don't, you don't have to turn there, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Peter says, above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, 
because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So inspiration does not mean that this flubber type thing overtook them and dictated a a letter out through their hands without the apostles knowing what was going on. But it also means that even though God used their personalities and their differences and their intricacies as human beings and their flaws as well, it means that nothing ever got written that was corrupted by man's will. Peter makes that very clear. No prophecy ever came about from the prophet's own interpretation or from human will. But rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible is inspired by God. means that God divinely Within his power, he was able to speak through fallen and flawed men to create a word that is incorruptible and perfect and preserved forever. So that's the inspired by God. Now, if Paul's talking about the Old Testament, how in the world in 2020, Barnum, Wyoming, can we trust the New Testament? Let's go down a history lesson. I hope it will be short enough to keep your attention and enjoyable enough to keep your attention. But a history lesson is where we're headed nonetheless. So in verse 16, it says, all scripture is inspired by God. We've already talked about the inspired by God part. Now let's think about scripture. Paul's writing about the the Old Testament. Now, long before Jesus or soon before Jesus ever was born on earth as the man in Nazareth, uh, or Jesus of Nazareth, um, the Old Testament had already been approved by Jews in chunks over time. It begins with the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Praise the Lord, I didn't mess that up. So every, all Jews like a long time ago were like, yeah, these are most certainly inspired by God, 100%. And then over the years, over time, the Jews continued to collect what they know God has spoken through his tried and true prophets. So the Old Testament was set up and and no arguments on the Old Testament when Jesus comes on the scene. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, that's whenever, after Jesus has, has died and resurrected, the gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they begin writing down accounts of what Jesus had done. And then since Jesus has resurrected, the early church has begun. So Paul, Peter, and these types of people, they, they're inspired by God to write letters to churches or to people. And, and, and God is divinely inspiring that work and they're being passed around from church to church to church. And, and then guess what happens? Men get involved. Humanity gets involved. People whose names are not Paul the apostle start writing letters saying, I, Paul the apostle. And they write weird stuff. Or like the Gospel of Thomas that tells you that in order for a woman to go to heaven, she must become a man. There's some weird stuff that gets circulated. And so the church is starting to go, okay, since we have so many heretics or people who are teaching false things and so many wicked people writing lies and saying that it's from God, we need to go back and find all the letters that were divinely inspired by God for the church. And so they come up with these criteria And this is over the course of of many decades that these criteria are met and churches meet in what they call councils and they're just agreeing and disagreeing and and they're seeking the Lord's wisdom in this. And here's four of the criteria. The first thing that if it didn't meet these four criteria, they knew that it wasn't from the Lord, that it wasn't divinely inspired. Was, Was it written by an apostle? An apostle is someone who was with Jesus face to face in the flesh. Right? And then there's, there's two books. Mark was not an apostle and Luke was not an apostle. But they were trained by Paul and Peter who were. And so the church accepted them and the authority in which they wrote because of whom they had been trained by and who was overseeing the projects. And so it had to be written by an apostle. The second thing is that it had to be accepted amongst the churches. See, the churches would would get these letters sent to them and sometimes fake ones got sent and they would go, this doesn't line up with the apostles' teaching, throw it out. But for the ones that lined up with the apostles' teaching and with what Jesus explicitly taught on his days on earth, they kept those. Then the third thing was that it had to have doctrinal truth. It had, again, going back to it, it not only had to line up 
with what the apostles were teaching, but it couldn't add any mixture to that. Again, that's where the gospel of Thomas comes in. It was written at the right time, Thomas. It was written by an apostle, but it was a lie. Nowhere in any form or fashion did Jesus ever say that for a woman to go to heaven, she had to become a male. Absolutely not. That goes against God's creation order. And so that one got kicked out. The fourth thing was that it had to be written in that time frame, right? You've got people like a hundred years later saying, I, Paul the Apostle, when Paul the Apostle has long been in heaven, right? He's not alive anymore. So they're like, hmm, I'm not thinking that this was the Paul the Apostle. And so the church around 320 AD, the church finishes this project of finding which books God had divinely inspired to them. Now, I want to, to give you a word of caution. The church did not give us the Bible, by the way. God gave us his Bible. He allowed his people to have the wisdom to, to ask around to all the churches in the early times and early days after Jesus' resurrection, which ones were you already seeing as authoritative? And they found unity. That's amazing. I can't even keep a like a... The fact that for over multiple decades, the church continued to agree on which ones were true and which ones weren't. I mean, there's some disagreement sometimes, but nothing major. That's a miracle. That's God who divinely inspired his word to write to his people, protecting, preserving that word. Now, there's a quote by a really smart man named J.I. Packer. He's way smarter than me. That's why I'm quoting him tonight. He said, because some people like to think, well, that's man-made then. Maybe the Old Testament is reliable, but all of these churches working together on which books are reliable, I don't like that. God had already written what was divinely inspired. It was our job to sift out the, the people who had lied through it, and, and we have a reliable source. So J.I. Packer makes this statement that, that the church no more gave us the Bible than Sir Isaac Newton gave us gravity. Just because you discovered the truth doesn't mean you're the one that created it. God had already spoken his perfect inerrant, meaning no errors in it, in perfect word, the Bible. We just had to take some processes to put it all together and make that. Uh, okay, this one's not, root, this one's not true. That, these are the ones that God has inspired. Now, let me finish one, one more nail in the coffin. The Bible is the most thoroughly documented book of all of history, of, of ancient history. We have over 5,400 manuscripts of the Bible. Not all of them are complete, but they're parts. Some of them are almost completely complete. Some are fragments. But here's the really, really cool thing. I've used this illustration before. If I were to tell Patrick something and he were to pass it every row back when it gets to my beautiful wife, Ashley, it most likely would not be the same thing. Here's what's amazing. We have copies of the Bible, manuscripts of the Bible from the first century. We also have them from the third century. That's a couple hundred years apart. We've got them 500, 500, 600, 700 years apart. And guess what? The only differences we find are maybe a comma where the other one put a period. There in, in the 5,400 copies of the Bible, the manuscripts of the Bible that we own and possess today, <clears throat> there are only grammatical and sentence type changes. There is no doctrinal differences in all of those. We have more copies and manuscripts than we do of Shakespeare's letters when it comes to the Bible. What I, what I want to argue as we land our history trip plane is that we have a very, very thoroughly documented work that lines up with every single historical, factual thing, that it, every test that you can put on the scriptures, it's found faithful. And we have a lot of evidence proving that what we have in our hands, what you hold in your lap or what's on your phone is reliable. And so right out of the gate, we see in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. And so we believe today that with the New Testament, the Bible, the entire thing, it's the inspired, perfect, preserved and uncorrupted word of God. If you have any more questions about that, which you, I'm sure you do, 
<clears throat> there's a book called Why Trust the Bible, little tiny book. Those are my favorites, really small ones, by a guy named Greg Gilbert. Don't even read it. Just get online and find the audio book. Listen to it as you're driving down. Everything in Wyoming is like two hours away. You could listen to the book on the way to Cheyenne, right? So why trust the Bible? A very small, easy to understand book that explains the process of how we got the Bible today. But the first thing we see in this passage is all scripture is inspired by God. So we believe that the Bible, New Testament and Old, is inspired by God. Next thing. Moving on to the back half of that, it says, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. So we see the Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is not man's book, it's God's book for man. And so God writes us this book. Why does he do it? Well, it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That word profitable in our day oftentimes is associated with money. It's really helpful to think of it in a term of beneficial or useful. And so the Bible, like the author, Paul, he writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, the Bible is God's perfect word. Period, point number one. Now, based on the fact that it's God's perfect word, it is beneficial for these things. And he lists them. It's amazing. For teaching. This word, very similar to uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus says, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command. The word teaching here, it has a two-fold meaning, just like it does in the Great Commission. It means informal and formal. So the word teaching means to receive instruction formally or informally. You cannot name, I cannot name a time and facet of life that that doesn't apply to. So right now, this is a formal gathering of Outfitter Church, right? Our, our church has gathered, we're meeting in the hangar. This is a formal time. We've got it on our website that from 6.30 to 7.30, and I just updated it every Wednesday up until like two hours ago, it said first and third. But every Wednesday, 6.30 to 7.30, that is a formal time of teaching for Outfitter Church. Paul is telling Timothy that the Bible is beneficial for these formal gatherings. So guess what? My promise to you, church, my promise to you, visitor, is that if you're going to be a part of this church, this is what you're going to get. Right, we're going to preach the Bible because it's beneficial for formal settings. More than formal settings, those that, oh, okay, well, the Bible's only important then on Wednesday nights at 6.30 or Sunday mornings with your church gathering. No, this means for your coffee shops, when you're driving to work and you've got it listening on your YouTube Bible or version Bible app, um, when, when you have friends over for dinner, uh, any time when you're out going hunting and, and you're talking about creation, whatever it may be, in every situation of life, whether it be a formal gathering or an informal setting, the Bible, God's perfect inspired word, is beneficial for those times. So it's beneficial for teaching and it's beneficial for rebuking. I have a great one because it says rebuking and correcting. I'll get to a hilarious story about my roommate in college in a moment. But it says for rebuking. This, this word means to call someone out on the basis of evidence. This is really referring to blatant sins that go against God's word. So this is for, um, you can fill in the blank. This is for those grievous sins. This is for those things that you know you're getting wrong. These are the situations that ultimately lead you astray from the Lord. These rebuking is, is what you do for someone that if, if they go, if they refuse to listen to you, if they refuse to repent, then ultimately it shows that they really didn't know Jesus in the first place because they refused to get rid of this clear, defined sin in their life. Isn't that amazing? that Paul is telling you that the Bible is useful for calling out people on sin that will lead them to death. Meaning when you see your friend or maybe your child going astray, going on the wrong path, and you go, I don't know what to do. Well, what you do is you point them to God's word and you say, look, God has so much better for you than this. 
I'm not saying that you, you beat them on the head with the Bible and tell them that they're horrible sinners. That is like having a GPS that won't shut up whenever you've taken a wrong turn. Turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around. Eventually you just shut the little Garmin thing off and you're like, I'm just gonna go with me and Jesus and find this way, right? So you don't wanna be the GPS in someone else's life when they're struggling with sin, like you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're ridiculous, you're worthless. You don't wanna do that. That's not being fluent in the Bible. That's not handling it rightly. But there's hope for our lives and there's hope for our friends and family and children's lives that when they go astray and they get caught up in, in dark, clear sin, we can call them back to God's word and say, this is not what's going to lead you to healthy, flourishing, abundant life that Jesus has planned for you. It is the Bible. That means that when we see Bob doing something that we don't like and we're jealous about it, we don't call Bob out. We don't have the authority to do that. We bring it to Bob's attention when he's clearly violated something that God has already spoken on. Not our judgmental opinions, but on God's perfect word, which judges us accurately. It's not our place to judge the intentions, but rather to say, hey, hey friend, like I, I'm, I, on the basis of clear evidence, I'm now going to correct you deeply because I'm seeing that what you're doing is not lining up with what God wants you to do, and I'm worried for your soul. Then it says correcting. So the Bible is profitable for teaching in formal and informal setting. Every single aspect of life, the Bible is beneficial, right? And then when, when you're in these aspects of life and you see someone caught in deep, dark sin, or maybe you're the one caught in deep, dark sin, it's, and it's God's word that pierces your hard heart and brings you to repentance, it's beneficial for that too. And then it's also beneficial for correcting. Now let me give you a funny illustration. My roommate in college did not grow up in church. He gave his life to Jesus. He's stinking awesome. I'm so proud of him. He always said rebuking. He said, Tyler, are you about to rebuke me? And we had a lot of hard conversations in college, right? He, and he'd say rebuke. So I would correct him and say it's rebuke, right? So that's correcting. Correcting means to make something be correct. That, that's what this was literally meaning to Paul's audience. They knew that rebuking was the deep, dark, hard things. You're going to have to walk through the trenches with these people. Correcting just like, hey, you kind of just missed that one. I, I specifically think, again, in college, I, there was this sweet girl that was a friend of mine. And, and one day I walked through the student center and she's got like seven Bibles out. I don't remember. I'm making that up. She had books and she's, you could just see she was distraught. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing? And she's like trying to figure out about these multiple heavens. And I'm like, hmm, tell me more. What are you talking about? Multiple heavens? She's like, well, in Genesis, the first book in the Bible, it says they keep saying heavens, plural. Like they looked into the heavens and, and they came from the heavens and this and the, and it was just all these plural heavens. She's like, I'm just trying to figure out how many heavens are there and which one do I need to be going to? Something like that. I was like, oh my goodness. I was trying not to laugh because I could tell that she was just, broken over this eternal problem for her. And I was like, all right, let me, thank you, Lord, that I had someone teach me what this means. I said, hey, woman that will be renamed, na remain unnamed. So the Jews referred to the sky as heavens. The first heaven was like the atmosphere that we live in. The second heaven is stars and galaxies. The third heaven is where God dwells. And so when they said heavens, plural, that was just kind of how they broke down the, the atmosphere. Oh, <laughs> she just like, you see this weight of like, where am I going to spend eternity? It comes off of her. She just missed it by a little bit. She wasn't going around teaching that there's three heavens and you got to do all these certain things to get into them. That's called heresy. And there's religions that do that. That's not worthy of a rebuke. She just didn't understand culturally what that word meant to Jews. And so I was like being able to correct just a simple mistake. And so that's where I think a lot about parenting is a lot of correcting. And so it is we, with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. We're a family. And we, we try and do things really, really well. We see something in Scripture like, boom, I'm going to do that. As a young believer, I read a proverb that says, he who winks with his eye plans deceit. I quit winking. I was like, I'm never going to wink at anybody else. They'd wink at me. I'm like, mm -mm. I'll double blink, but I'm not winking at you because I'm not planning deceit. Well, I didn't realize, again, that's a cultural thing for them. That was, that was different. I don't know what kind of mob bosses were winking and getting away with things in the Old Testament, but 
you know, looking at your buddy and be like, that was funny, wink, right? You know, I realized that I'm not sinning when I wink. That was a small correction that I had to learn. That's, that's what the Bible's getting at, is that, that the Bible is beneficial for every single setting in your life, whether you're at a coffee shop or you're at a cathedral. And the Bible is beneficial for the deep, dark, ugly sins in your life. It will pierce through those and cleanse you and bring you to freedom. It'll also be the guide in which you can help your friends get out of sin and into freedom. Not just um, in every setting and not just for the deep, dark sins, but it's also for the little corrections where we just, we're striving after Jesus and we get it wrong and we just need a little correcting. Something just a, a realignment. Not only is it good for those, but it is good and useful and beneficial for training in righteousness. This is my favorite part of this passage, I think. For training in righteousness. The word train means to, to start actions with the intention of forming habits, right? So, so he's saying that the Bible is useful for workouts that you're going to develop good technique with or, or habits that you're, or for actions and intentions that you're going to begin having good habits with. That's what it's getting at. Habit forming actions and intentions. That's training. Then it says training in righteousness. Righteousness means your ability to obey God. These are spiritual workouts. The Bible, the perfect, inspired, and preserved, and protected Word of God is beneficial for your spiritual workouts. We're still in January. Everybody probably is still somewhat enthused about their New Year's resolutions. If you follow me on Instagram, I just posted some of mine. I've already broken them. I had Taco Bell for lunch and quesadillas for dinner. And so I've broken my eating clean resolution. But every year you've seen it, right? Like, I'm going to do this this year. And they got all these awesome things. But then usually by February, and I've heard this, I don't work out. So I've heard that gyms in March are empty. When in January, you couldn't even find a place to go sit down and do a bench press. Why? Because those people failed to form habits that overcame their old habits. So they set out with a goal, but because they didn't form the right habits, they failed. And so it is with our spiritual lives. And Paul is telling to young Timothy, who's the pastor, very, very similar situation to Outfitter Church, a young pastor with a brand new church. And so he's saying, Timothy, the Bible is useful for you developing your soul's strength. It is, if you're looking for a workout, it's the gym, it's the dumbbells, it's the air conditioner inside, it's the membership fee, it's the card, it's everything. If you've seen the Chuck Norris commercials for Total Gym, the Bible is the Total Gym, right? Chuck Norris used to get on TV, he said, you don't need anything but this. And if you wanna look like me and be able to roundhouse kick anyone in the face, then get the total gym. And, and so that's what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is that if you're wanting to work out and strengthen your soul, look no further than the scriptures that are inspired by God. I can think of no better thing for you. If you're sitting in a chair in this room or standing with kids in the back I can think of nothing better for you to do for your soul this year than to join us in our Bible fluency plan. There's, there's little booklets at that table in the back and, and it's something for you to read in the scriptures every single day of the year. Now, if you've already set a goal to read something else, by all means, this is not like a God-given plan that you have to do these things. No. If you're a member of our church, I invite you to do that. If you're visiting with us, you're like, all right, I, this year I want to begin understanding Jesus more. I encourage you to pick up that Bible reading plan or on the connection card that you were given when you walked in, write Bible plan and leave your email and I'll email it to you. And what it is, is every single day we have four or five chapters to choose from. There's two in the Old Testament and two in the New Testament. And what's really cool is if you read this plan throughout the year, you're going to read the whole Bible and a little bit more in the year. But our church is doing that. I'm doing that. Gage Baker in the back is doing that. Some of our members are doing that. Guess what? Whenever I sit down for coffee with them or whenever we go out to do anything fun or anytime I'm with my church, guess what? I can say, hey, have you been reading in this? 
And if they have been, then somewhere we're going to be able to discuss what God's doing with what we've been reading. It's called eating in the same pasture, right? We're, we're all feeding in the same green pasture. Now, again, you don't have to do this. But if you're really wanting to strengthen your spiritual life this year, I encourage you, join us. If you're a great Bible reader, it'll take about 35 to 40 minutes to read every single chapter that is assigned. If you're just beginning to work out your soul with reading scripture, just pick a chapter and read it. Someone in our church is reading that same chapter that same day. And that gives you the ability to talk with them about what God's teaching you and ask questions. I encourage you to do that. So, so we saw first off that the Bible is inspired by God. And after we read the second half of that, we see that the Bible is our foundation for obedience to God. If you say that you love God, but you don't know the Bible, those are two very hard, exclusive things. Jesus says, if you love me, John 14, 15 and 15, 14, if you love me, you will obey my commands. It's hard to obey Jesus's commands if you don't know what he's commanded. So the Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is also our foundation for obedience to God. And the last thing we see in verse 17 is that the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. Read with me. Verse 17 says, so all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything that summarize in your mind, summarize everything in the last 15 to 20 minutes that I've just said, all of that, the fact that the Bible has been preserved and perfected or kept perfect and preserved, and the fact that it's useful for every single situation in life, whether deep, dark sin or just little corrections. And so it's, it's for the strengthening your soul. Why is all this important? So that, so the end goal of the scriptures is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word man here, man or woman, it, it means a person, a human being, right? So ladies, you, you don't get off the hook. You still got to know the scriptures as well, okay? And so the purpose of the Bible is not to know the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is to know God. And if you want to know God, then the Bible is sufficient for that. If you want to live a life in obedience to God, the Bible is sufficient for that. And it says, so that the man of God may be complete, which means capable. Well, capable for what? Capable and equipped for every good work. What this sentence is really hitting home with is that in general, your life looks morally good. It, it, it really is. It says good works. Works is just the general day-to-day -day tasks, and good means morally good. So he's saying that the Bible is, is, is inspired by God, it's our foundation for obedience, and it is sufficient for your life. Why? It's, the Bible is what makes you capable of living obedient to God. I think about in this, this flies in opposition to who we were before Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 3, it says that we too all previously lived among them, meaning lost people, in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. And so Ephesians, the same author, is writing to a different church and he's saying, before Christ saved your life and gave you new life in him, you were by nature a child of wrath and that your inclinations and that your thoughts were sinful and you acted upon them always. That is a far cry, friends, from what we're seeing in 2 Timothy 3, 17. It says, so that you may be, or so the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good 
work. Paul is saying that if you'll live according to the scriptures, if you'll devote yourself to being fluent with handling the Bible, then your life will be equipped for every good thing day in and day out. So the Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is our foundation for obedience to God. And the Bible is sufficient. There is an entire chapter, the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I already told you to join our Bible reading plan. Well, on your way home tonight, which if you live in Bar, in Bar, Bar None, I don't know where that came from. If you live in Bar None, you won't even have time to pull out your Bible app or anything to, to put it on your car, okay? But on your next drive, or when you get home tonight, just listen to Psalm 119. It's long, but almost every single verse in that chapter explicitly refers to the goodness of the Word of God. That ought to compel us to study it. See, because if the Bible is perfect and su sufficient, then we ought to devote ourselves to being fluent in it. Like with the story I told earlier, I knew the language, I didn't know the culture. If you only halfway or half-heartedly know the Bible, you're going to miss out and you're going you're gonna to be confused and you're going to cause awkward situations for your own life and for those that are around you. This isn't a guilt trip, by the way. This is an encouragement from God's Word that we need to be devoted to knowing it. See, there's so many times I catch myself trying to find satisfaction from a news feed. Anybody else like that? Just scrolling through Facebook, hoping something will entertain you. Scrolling through Instagram, thinking that that's what's going to make your day better. Or maybe you're, maybe you're just hooked on Apple News. Or maybe you just, you, if you don't get to read the newspaper every day, you just, it's going to ruin your day, right? Or if the guy gets it, it, throws it in the snow and it gets all wet whenever you get in. I don't know what it is that you're looking to daily for satisfaction or for completeness, but let me just remind you that there is not a news feed, there's not a newspaper, there's not a news article that is worthy of your devotion like there is the Word of God. The Bible is sufficient, which means it is enough. If you want to live life in love and in obedience to God, you have to know His Word. That's why we're doing that Bible reading plan. I haven't read every single day. If you get way behind, guess what? Skip it. Get caught back up with where we're at. There's readings for every day. January 15th, there's some readings for today. If you miss 14, 13, 12, and 11, skip them. Say, hey, I'll read it eventually. Pick up with us where we are. Now, I want to do some damage control here because... I having walked with Jesus for 10 years, which is still early and young, I believe. But I've got 10 years with Jesus and I've got 10 years with the enemy trying to attack me. Anytime someone talks about that you can't really serve God well unless you know the Bible well, it's like, well, whew, good thing I'm not doing anything this week. Good thing I'm not gonna do anything for the Lord because the pastor said I shouldn't serve the Lord well unless I know the Bible. And since I don't know the Bible, I'm not gonna serve the Lord. Let me just take some pressure off of you. Let me just expose the lies of the enemy. If you know enough about Jesus to have been saved by him and follow him, you know enough about Jesus to tell others about him. You can do the work of the Lord. Now, it's like driving without an alignment. You can get down the road and you know that you kind of got to compensate for the swerve. But the more we know the Bible, the better our spirit and our soul and our life is aligned to God's plans for our lives and the more clearly and more powerfully we can navigate through life. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Outfitter Church, my promise to you as your pastor 
is that every single gathering we have here, I'm going to preach God's word to you. I'm going to preach it to myself. I'm going to read God's word daily, or at least close to daily. I'm going to strive for daily. Our church is going to be a church that loves God's word because it's God's word that helps us know who he is so we can love him more. Like I said, reading the Bible is not, that's not the goal. Knowing the Bible well is not the end goal. Knowing God is the end goal. And so we learn about God here. We obey God when we know this word better. The more we know God and obey God, the more we love God. It's a beautiful little triangle that just keeps going. But it doesn't do you any good to study the scriptures day after day if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That's one thing that is abundantly clear in the scriptures is that without a relationship with Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins, was buried and has resurrected and is alive today, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, if you don't have that relationship, then this book isn't going to get you there. This, this book's not going to make you go to heaven because you knew the Bible, but you don't know the God who wrote it. So I have two encouragements. So I've already told you to join our Bible reading plan, grab one of those at the back, or tell me to email you and I will. So I've told you that, okay? I've also told you to go listen to Psalm 119. I don't want to send you home with a thousand things to do. So my final two encouragements is brother or sister in Christ. You will do well in 2020 to devote yourself to knowing and being fluent in the word of God. There is no greater endeavor. It's better than any workout plan. It's better than any eating plan. I'm not saying to be fat and lazy, okay? I'm trying to stop being that myself. But I'm saying that if you're going to devote yourself to something this year, devote it to knowing God through his word. That's my encouragement to you, church, or to the Christians in here. My other encouragement is if, <clears throat> if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, what I mean by that is does Jesus guide and direct the, the majority of everything you do in your life? Uh, is your life, your purpose and your passions primarily influenced in his lordship in your life? Do you long to know Jesus more and more every day? If that's not you, then I'm going to encourage you, it doesn't matter how, what kind of Bible reading plan you have or what you accomplish in this life, if you don't know the God that created you, Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? So my encouragement is, as I'm going to ask our band to come on up here, I'm going to ask them to begin playing so that we can respond to God in worship through song. As they're doing that, I'm going to ask you, what kind of decisions do you need to make tonight? If you're faithfully studying the scriptures, and I don't mean perfectly. Remember I said faithfully, right? Attempting and being faithful in your attempts to study God's word. Great. Keep at it. Don't quit. If you're struggling with that, like I said, please let us as a church walk with you. Pick up one of those Bible reading plans and go home and ask God, whether it's one chapter, part of one chapter, or all four, begin reading God's word and just watch it do its work. Or maybe you're in here and you're like, Tyler, I've been exploring Jesus, but I'm ready to take that leap. I want to put my faith in Christ. I want to submit to him as the leader and the Lord of my life. If that's you tonight, I'm going to just going to confess some truth and I'm just going to give you time to repeat that back to you. So I'm going to say something. It's a prayer. There's nothing special about it. I'm just speaking truth to God. And if you're wanting to surrender your life and begin following Jesus, then repeat that prayer in your mind or quietly to yourself. So I'm going to ask everyone in here just to close their eyes and bow their heads. If you're ready to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, then repeat this after me. 
God, I need you. I admit that for most of my life, I haven't trusted you. I haven't believed you. But tonight, I'm putting my trust in you. I believe you've spoken to us by your perfect word. You tell me my sins can be forgiven. I want you to forgive my sins. I thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to die in my place, who resurrected and can give me life. Save my soul, God. I surrender to you. I will follow you all my days. Help me to be faithful to you. Now, if you prayed that, I just, I really want you, that connection card that you were given, I just want you to say, I trusted Christ on the bottom of that. Leave me your phone or something. One of our church members will call you this week. Make sure you have a Bible and make sure you have an opportunity to get to know people in our church so that we can walk with you. Now I want to pray for our church and then we're going to worship through song. And Father, I just thank you for what you're doing in Barnon and in Casper and in all the surrounding areas. I pray, God, that Outfitter Church would be a church that loves the Bible. That we love the Bible because it helps us to love you. It helps us to be obedient to you. God, help us to know that it's inspired. It's the foundation for our obedience. And it is sufficient. Help us, God, to reject the lie that you are not enough and that we would be a church that is built upon your word. In Jesus' name.